One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Napoleon was dismayed when he learned that he wasn't going to be sent to America by the British as he'd hoped, but rather he was going to be exiled, uh, imprisoned, on a rugged volcanic island in the South Atlantic. St Helena is just about as remote an island as you can find on Earth. It's about 2,000 miles from any other significant landmass. The British had seen how he'd escaped from Elba in the Mediterranean and made his way back to France. They were not going to let this happen again. I've approached St Helena by sea from the same direction Napoleon did. He was aboard a British battleship. When you stare at the north coast of the island, there's no obvious natural harbour. There's just a, a wedge sliced in the rampart of dark cliffs. This is where he landed and eventually made his way up into the interior, which was steep, rocky, jagged. He arrived there on the 15th of October 1815. He'd spent 10 weeks aboard the British ship HMS Northumberland. It was not until December until he was moved into Longwood House. It was inhospitable, so parts of it were falling down because of the damp and it was said to be infested with rats. During Napoleon's time on the island, Sir Hudson Lowe was the governor of St Helena. His main duty was to ensure that Napoleon didn't escape. Lowe was petty-minded, he was rude, he was unnecessarily controlling. Napoleon did eventually elicit some kindness from Hudson Lowe, and, and Lowe agreed to build him a new, sturdier, nicer Longwood house. But Napoleon never saw this property completed. He died after six years in exile on the 5th of May, 1821. people ask me about Napoleon's death and the circumstances are somewhat contested. Some say he was poisoned or even poisoned himself. Others say he died of boredom. In 1955, the diaries of Napoleon's valet, Louis Marchand, were published and his description of Napoleon the months before his death have led some to suggest that perhaps Napoleon was deliberately poisoned. Arsenic was the method of choice in those days because it was undetectable when administered over a long period. And it was also noted that when Napoleon's body was exhumed in 1840, 
it was found to be well-preserved, and arsenic is a strong preservative. But there have been many more modern studies in which researchers analysed samples of Napoleon's hair from throughout his life, as well as samples from his family and other contemporaries. All those samples had high levels of arsenic, approximately 100 times higher than the current average. And according to these studies, it does seem like Napoleon's body was already heavily contaminated with arsenic as a boy. The fact that people were constantly exposed to arsenic, from glues to dyes in wallpaper throughout their lives. What we do know is during the last few years of his life, Napoleon was confined for months on end in the damp and mould-infested Longwood house, which would almost have certainly taken a toll on his health. And he also went through years of isolation and loneliness. The results of an autopsy suggest that Napoleon suffered from terrible ulcers, which affected his liver and intestines. If you look at those famous portraits of Napoleon, you've seen him with his hand on his stomach, fueling speculation he suffered from stomach pains for most of his life. His father had died of stomach cancer. And the explanation that Napoleon died as a result of stomach issues definitely suits the British, who want to distance themselves from any responsibility because of the poor conditions that he'd been kept in. To this day, there's no absolutely conclusive cause of death for Napoleon. When he died, he was buried on the island in a beautiful spot overhung with Bougainvillea. You can still go and visit it today, despite his request that he'd be laid to rest on the banks of the Seine among the French people he loved so much. But in 1840, the British government allowed his remains to be returned to France and entombed in the crypt at Les Invalides in Paris, where other French military leaders are interned. And you can still go and visit today. The enduring speculation around his death is actually just symptomatic of an enduring fascination with all things Napoleon. People devote their lives to trying to figure out what he thought, how he ate, how he lived, what he was like as a child, a man, a lover, a leader. So much so that there's even a Wikipedia page, folks, I urge you not to Google this, dedicated to his penis. To save you the pain, I will give you the quick pricey. It said that in autopsy, a doctor cut his penis off, after which it passed through several owners and appeared on exhibit in New York City in 1927. In 1977, it was purchased by a man named John K. Latimer, and it's been kept in his family collection ever since. Everyone seems to want a piece of Napoleon, figuratively and literally. Why are we so obsessed with this Corsican? who wasn't on Earth for that long an amount of time, and whose imperial dreams ended up utterly defeated, wiped out. Well, this is the final episode of our Napoleon series on Dan Snow's history. I'm joined by Andrew Roberts, Lord Roberts, biographer and author of Napoleon the Great, to unpick our obsession and the myths wrapped around Napoleon Bonaparte. Andrew Roberts, thank you very much for coming back on the podcast. Thank you. You and I have both been to that remarkable house in St. Helena. There's a really fascinating feel about it. The climate there is so unusual. that You feel so isolated there. It's one of the most isolated scraps of land on the planet. Was it a purgatory for Napoleon there? Yes, yes. It was purgatory from the moment that he saw it. Uh, when he <laughs> spotted, you know, as you come in on the ship to uh, those enormous sort of 600 foot cliffs on both sides of the capital there, <laughs> he said, uh, I wish I'd stayed in Egypt. And, yes. uh, and he was right to think that because it was terrible for him, even the first two years 
I was very lucky when I went there. I don't know about you, but it was actually very nice weather. But for 300 days of the year, it's actually in the clouds. So it was sticky and dank and everybody had colds the entire time. And then, of course, two years later in 1817, he started to um, contract his cancer. So it was a time living on an island that's, what, eight by 10 miles or something. And as you say, indeed, it's actually the second most remote inhabited island in the world after Tristan de Cunwa. So um, he hated every second of it. And the British, some British officials were all right, but one or two were particularly awful and just made him just a constant battle against petty bureaucracy. Well, really one in particular, Sir Hudson Lowe. The first of the governors was nice, but he only lasted a few months. And then for the rest of his time on St. Helena for the next six years, you had Sir Hudson Lowe, who was this pettifogging um, individual. Understandably, of course, he couldn't allow Napoleon to escape and didn't know that Napoleon had no plans to escape. But um, he'd also been the head of the Corsican Rangers, which was a group of anti-French Corsicans. And Sir Hudson Lowe had commanded these people. And so Napoleon thought of Hudson Lowe as somebody who essentially commanded a quizzling squadron. And so he would never uh, have got on with him under any circumstances. But Hudson Lowe was small-minded enough to pass up the opportunity of trying to befriend um, Napoleon. Yeah. God, imagine chatting with him every night. Oh, it would have been fun. Can you imagine? Yeah. Can you imagine? Oh, to be able to interview him, you'd scurry back and write down everything he said. You'd published the great history book, and it was petty. And Napoleon, he had to avoid the Prussians who wanted to hang him. He thought about trying to get to America, didn't he, after defeat at Waterloo? He did, but the um, the Royal Navy had a stranglehold on Rochefort, where he'd, he'd um, escaped to, and there was no actual possibility. Um, Joseph, his brother, did manage to uh, escape. Um, but uh, Napoleon thought that it was more sort of seemly and honourable to surrender to the Royal Navy. He did have this rather strange expectation that he was going to be allowed to come and live in the home counties in some country house and sort of entertain weak politicians and so on, <laughs> which is very weird considering that a hundred thousand people, there were a hundred thousand casualties in the hundred days between him landing in March 1815 on the South French coast and the Battle of Waterloo, you know, so there was simply no way that the Allies were going to let him sort of retire into private life. Describe the house, Longwood House. I mean, it's sort of, it's comfortable, isn't it? It's very damp. It was shoddily built, wasn't it? It's the wrong materials for the wrong climate. And termites would attack it. And uh, it was so damp that they had to put the playing cards in the oven to dry them out every evening. They got so sticky otherwise. <laughs> Can you imagine how, how damp it must be to have to do that? He's got a sort of little court around him. It's quite a strange setup. How many people has he got with him? And, what's the, and it's quite formal, isn't it? Yes, he brought out 29 people. And this in itself, I think, is very interesting in that they weren't all paid terribly well. They went out because of Napoleon's charisma, because they had been serving him for a long time, because they loved and admired him. And they came out to serve him. And many of them actually did stay the entire seven years until he died. So there obviously was something tremendously personally charismatic about uh, Napoleon. He is thought to have slept with his Lord Chamberlain's wife, 
very difficult to prove anything like that nowadays, but it was generally considered to be true. Everyone was gossiping the entire time, both inside the entourage and also the British who had connections with the French court. But it was a tiny little sort of mini court with all of the things that you get in all courts, um, you know, jealousies and bitchiness and uh, ill temper and very little money. But he does write his memoirs, and these prove to be rather important, don't they? And I've been to the wonderful room with all this from maps all over the tables, and he'd sort of talk about his old campaigns. What is the purpose of his memoirs? Why did he start writing them? Well, you're absolutely right that uh, they're very important. They are, apart from Uncle Tom's Cabin, the biggest bestseller of the 19th century which is completely extraordinary, really, um, because he is, of course, entirely just putting his point of view. There's no attempt at objectivity. There's no attempt at doing anything other than um, justifying himself all the way through. It's not that useful, frankly, quite a lot of it for um, historians. But boy, does it make a great read. And it, of course, completely solidifies the Napoleonic myth the myth of his greatness, the sort of legendary status of Napoleon is created by this book, The Memorials of St. Helena. And that's why the French asked for his body to come back to um, Les Invalides in, in December 1840. That's why we're still talking about him today. That's interesting. I'm trying to think. I mean, Frederick the Great wrote bits and bobs, but I mean, is this a very modern, in itself very modern, the idea of a, a great leader just... I mean, we think there are some missing ones from the ancient world, don't we? But I'm trying to think of another early modern or even medieval example of a great leader really writing out, trying to write the first draft of history and make themselves look as good as possible in a very engaging way, designed to be bought, to be read, to be popular. There aren't that many other of those um, examples. Obviously, in more modern times, Winston Churchill's History of the Second World War, where you can pick apart actually some parts that are obviously designed to promote the Churchillian myth. But no, at the time, it was a hell of a thing to do. Ulysses Grant's autobiography, which isn't hugely self-serving, that was just done for the money. But it's a very fine book. But you're right, it's uh, overall a pretty new genre for uh, Napoleon. The idea that Chatham or someone would have sort of just written down a really engaging account of their career. I mean, this must it must have been quite electrifying when it came out, the idea that you can read the great man's story in his own words. I mean, that's very powerful. Yes. And as I say, it, uh, it was a huge success. With Wellington, of course, you've got his dispatches, haven't you, and his supplementary dispatches. And so you can tell what was going through his mind at the time. And in a way, that's much more believable because he actually had to, he wrote them at the time rather than with the 2020 hindsight that Napoleon wrote his uh, memoirs with. Napoleon famously said that uh, history is a set of lies agreed upon. He was trying to create this myth, was he? I mean, what, sitting there at the end of his life on the... I mean, he didn't think this would somehow get him back to France. What was his purpose in writing this? It was posthumous greatness. And remember that posthumous greatness really did matter to him. Ever since he was um, the schoolboy reading about Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar and so on, he recognized that um, it wasn't just lifetime greatness he was after. He was after you know, proper historical greatness. And he knew also that it wasn't all going to be about conquering because he did, after all, lose and uh, wound up on in exile and having been defeated at Waterloo. So when he spoke about the blocks of granite that he had thrown into 
France and Europe. What he was talking about were things like the Code Napoleon and the Concordat with the Pope and the Légion d'honneur and the uh, Banque de France and the infrastructure, all the great bridges and so on that he's built and the Cour de Comte and so on. And so he wanted to make it clear that he wasn't just a soldier. He was a reformer. He was an administrator. His educational reforms, of course, which are still in existence today in France, these were the blocks of granite. And so one understands entirely that he was trying to create his own myth, his own legend, but at the same time, he did have a lot of blocks of granite to build it on. It strikes me, listening to you, that in this last battle, this is probably his most successful battle, turning himself into one of history's greatest men here in the 21st century. From our perspective, we'd say that's true. I mean, his name is always mentioned alongside that of Caesar and and Alexander, certainly in the West. So actually, this is greater, a greater victory than Austerlitz. Uh, I think so. Oh, definitely, yes. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't think Ridley Scott would be making a movie about him, though, had he stopped on Elba and, and lived on Elba for the rest of his life. It required that last hundred days, the Battle of Waterloo, the whole of Europe against him, the return to Paris, all of those sort of extraordinary stories. And then, of course, the six years on St. Helena, slowly dying and living out his last days in exile. That is so much part of the Napoleonic epic that I think, uh, as I say, this movie wouldn't have been made if he just abdicated in 1814 and never been heard of again. So maybe the British should have let him have that stately home in southern England, hanging out with fat wigs and just drinking himself into um, obscurity. Or they should have had two frigates going round Elba 24 hours a day rather than just one. Yeah, true. And the the chap who was in charge, the British um, governor, whose job it was to keep an eye on, um, on Napoleon, he went off to Florence to his oculist and possibly to see his mistress. Uh, some people say it was both. Well, if you're going to see your oculist, you might well see your mistress as well. But whoever it was, he jolly well should have stayed on Elba and prevented Napoleon from leaving. You listen to Dan Snow's History It. There's more coming up. Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, I'm looking for answers to the big questions about every aspect of life in the early modern period. Like, how did the memory of Anne Boleyn continue to influence the court of her daughter, Elizabeth I? How were fairies brought to life on the Elizabethan stage? And how did the arrival of male-only doctors threaten the lives of women? In other words, not just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Twice a week, every week. Subscribe now and follow me on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. 
Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember, when you use a messaging app, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage, add unlimited photos and videos, and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Dan Snow at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. So he dies in 1821. He's buried in a what a wonderful spot on St. Helena in a big grave. Then two years later, this memoir is published and it goes completely wild, does it? That is the reason that there was such a call to bring him back to Europe, is it? Yes, exactly that. And also Louis-Philippe um, had a pretty sort of lacklustre and bourgeois government and it wasn't considered to have any glory. And so he thought that if he brought back Napoleon's, uh, what were called the cinders, the ashes, but actually was the body, and buried it in great splendour in Les Invalides on the banks of the Seine in accordance with Napoleon's will, that somehow the sort of stardust of Napoleon would land on Louis-Philippe, which it it very seriously did not do. But there we go. Yeah, that's like when politicians sort of hang out with rock stars today. It never seems to quite work It for never them. works, does it? No. Um, so, yeah. So, but is it possible to evaluate just before the publication of the book what Napoleon's reputation was in France and elsewhere, just in the months before the publication. Yes, the Bourbons tried everything they possibly could to make Napoleon out to be a monster. They banned pro-Napoleonic, uh, pro-Bonapartist books from being published. And so as a result, on occasion, they exiled people who were about to write pro-Napoleonic books, people who'd served with Napoleon. And so... There was very much a, uh, a sense of censorship and negative views of Napoleon, which were pretty much turned upside down once this book was published. And presumably Louis-Philippe will have allowed this book to be published. This, this is the Louis-Philippe, the last king of France, who's swept in in 1830 and represents a sort of, they hoped, a slightly British constitutional form of monarchy. Would he have allowed the book to be published, do we think? Yes, yes. And that's what made it in, into the great bestseller that it was, because he thought it would undermine the Bourbons. And of course, he was an Orleanist, and he didn't think that uh, it would therefore undermine him. But it most certainly did, not least because Napoleon III, Napoleon's great nephew, was already attempting to overthrow uh, Louis-Philippe's throne. The British had prevailed upon to allow his body to be brought back to France. It's a rather amazing account of the tomb being opened and what his body looked like and things. It was brought back. Did the British come to regret that, do you think? Or what was the thinking there? Wellington was asked about whether he minded this happening in, uh, in 1840. And um, he said... Uh, I couldn't give a tuppenny damn what happens to Napoleon's body. <laughs> and uh, it was a way of uh, solidifying the, by then quite strong 
Anglo-French Entente, which of course goes on only 14 years later to um, have both of us fighting on the same side in the Crimean War. It was important to have an Anglo-French uh, understanding, and it went some way to advancing that. So overall, the British government thought it was a good thing. I mean, they wouldn't have allowed it if they hadn't. And a million people attend the state funeral. So the cult, Napoleon cult has at this point, it is fully underway. Yes, and it's held on the 2nd of December, which is a key uh, thing, both because it was the anniversary of the coronation in 1804, but also the Battle of Austerlitz in 1805. And it's a very snowy day. It's freezing cold. There's lots of snow there, but the marshals march, or at least the living marshals who didn't betray Napoleon. <laughs> Marchand wasn't invited, for example, but uh, the living marshals march behind the coffin. And it's one of the great moments in the history of Paris. I, speaking of snowy days, I've always been very sad. I was born the day after December the 3rd. And as a, as a kid, I thought, I just wish I'd been born on the 2nd. <laughs> because of that. I don't know what that says about you psychologically, I, Dan. Listen, I don't think it's anything Andrew, good, by the way. <laughs> lots of bad things. Lots of bad things. I'm just a guy shouting into a podcast mic, wishing that I was a dictator. Anyway, that's enough about me. Um, and presumably this event, you get histories coming out. You get the propagation of this myth of his greatness it's now an industry. It's a huge industry. Um, there have been more books written with Napoleon in the title than there have been days since his death. <laughs> so how about that? Um, so you can imagine how hubristic I was when I uh, decided that I would uh, write the sort of 10,000th um, biography of Napoleon. But nonetheless, it's a wonderful thing to do. I, it allowed me to visit 53 of Napoleon's 60 battlefields in 10 countries. It was pure pleasure from beginning to end, I have to say. And so that was really interesting. The fact that he didn't have a Napoleon complex, there is such a thing as a Napoleon complex, but Napoleon didn't have one, uh, was also something that came as a sort of surprise to me. Can I unpack that quickly? What meaning? He, because he wasn't particularly short or uh, what are we talking? He wasn't short. No, no, no. He was average for the time, average size Frenchman. And also the Napoleon complex where you are just forced to carry on invading countries regardless willy-nilly. In fact, in the 1812 campaign, he had beaten the Russians twice before. He only intended to spend three weeks going about 50 miles into their country. And he had an army the same size as Paris at the time, 615,000 men. It was twice the size of the Russian army. So it wasn't a sort of insane hubristic thing to have done in the way that history tends to relate about Napoleon. But the thing that struck me most really was the way in which he kept the best bits of the French Revolution, meritocracy, quality before the law, religious toleration. And he got rid of all the mad bits like the guillotine and the, uh, I mean, some people were guillotined, but only if they attempted to assassinate him. Um, he wasn't killing 40,000 people a year like Robespierre was. And he also managed to get rid of mad things like the 10-day working week and their sort of abolition of Christianity and so on. And he was able, therefore, to essentially set up what has turned into modern France. So that's interesting. I didn't know that about the Russian campaign. So he was hoping to fight a sort of limited campaign as he had in 1806-7, I think? Yes. To just force the Tsar to re-engage with the blockade of Britain, for example, just a sort of limited exactly. victory. Yeah, okay, interesting. Exactly that. He was, he was hoping to do another Eilau and Friedland of 1807 or possibly the Jena campaign of 1806, but he never intended to go all the way to Moscow. Yeah. The, the myth, as you say, it did not help Louis Philippe's regime in France that toppled in 1848. 
eventually a new sort of dictator emerged, Napoleon III, who fascinatingly is son of Napoleon's brother, isn't he? But also of Josephine's daughter by her first marriage or something. Yes, that's right. Queen Hortense uh, married King Louis of um, Holland, and Napoleon III was their second child. Fascinating. So he's got Josephine and Napoleon's blood in him. And he swept into office, but really on his name? Entirely on his name, yes. He had a uh, a certain sort of um, joie de vivre, I think <laughs> you'd say, with Napoleon III. He was imprisoned in Ham prison for uh, quite a time. He attempted two coups. Then he does get elected, of course, in 1851 as uh, minister president. And then he declares himself that he does a sort of mini coup. And uh, then he becomes emperor in 1852 on the 2nd of December, needless to say. And so there is a strong sense that none of this would have happened had he not had the name Napoleon and the surname Bonaparte, absolutely. And the French people by that stage, are they doing the careful... Um, considered Andrew Roberts' approach to Napoleon's greatness and thinking about the way he's reshaped France and the relationship between church and state and stuff? Or is there a nostalgia for military victories, for greatness on the battlefield? People by that stage had forgotten about the, or at least weren't thinking about the six million people who died in the Napoleonic Wars and Revolutionary Wars. They thought that France had become corrupt, which uh, in many ways it had. They worried about robbery and breakdown in civil order and lots of other perfectly reasonable things to worry about. But yes, there was still a sort of yearning for French greatness, which you saw nothing of in the Orleanist 1840 to 1848 period. But also what Napoleon III rather cleverly did was to build up support from exactly the same areas, political areas, that Napoleon I had had support, i.e. the rural peasantry. That was the reason why Napoleon I won all those referendums, as well as cheating in them, by the way. There was quite a lot of that going on. But also because he was trusted by the rural peasantry. And so that was also where um, Napoleon III tried to, and succeeded in, getting his support from. As a side note, I'm always fascinated by Napoleon III, when he, he was kicked out during the Franco-Prussian War, a disaster in 1870. And then his son ends up fighting for the British Army, the Crown Prince, and dies in the Anglo-Zulu War, fighting Zulus in South Africa. It's fascinating. It is. And then his um, father... Um, Napoleon III dies in 1873, six years before the Zulu War, but his mother doesn't die until 1920. So the Empress Eugenie, who's also buried in Chislehurst, is around for the First World War and becomes friends with Lady Haig, Earl Haig's wife. And so you have this Napoleonic, this Bonapartist epic, which starts in Ajaccio in 1769 and goes all the way through to Chislehurst in 1920. That is amazing, isn't it? When we talk about Napoleon, Burke, didn't he, suggested that inevitably a dictator would emerge from the chaos of the French Revolution. Do you think that's true or do you think it only Napoleon could have, was someone of his extraordinary ability and talent and luck required to um, fulfill that role? Revolutions do throw up dictators. The witness of history is pretty uniform in that, isn't it? But I think France was fortunate that it had a dictator who was interested in things like the Code Napoleon and the Banque de France and the 
education system and so on. You know, there are an awful lot of people who could have wound up being the dictator of France. In fact, there were several who thought that they should, not least Bernadotte, uh, who later became king of Sweden, who couldn't really understand how it was that this uh, thrusting young 30-year-old artillery captain should have wound up as the first consul. But it was him who undertook the Brumaire coup and not them. And so uh, ultimately, I think um, France was very fortunate that it had a a genuine um, genius, even though one who did commit war crimes and who was overall, of course, um, responsible for, as I say, these 100,000 casualties after he escaped from Elba. Yeah, you mentioned 100,000 casualties. I always remember that book written by Robert Toombs and his wife about Britain and France. And they had these, at the end of each chapter, when they couldn't agree, they wrote separate essays about what they thought about the history that they'd just written together. And in the Napoleon complex, you mentioned that he just wanted to invade endlessly other countries. Where do you stand? For example, at the end of the Peace of Amiens, when Britain and France go back to war against each other, the Brits blamed Napoleon's bellicosity, raising invasion fleet, looking towards Britain. He refused to evacuate certain places he said he was going to evacuate. But he's got a fairly good argument against the Brits as well. Where do you stand on how far we should place the blame for this gigantic, catastrophic war, series of wars, on Napoleon himself? I think he's definitely responsible for the 1808 to 1814 Peninsula War. That was entirely unnecessary. I think he was entirely to blame for the 1812 campaign. Again, he didn't have to invade uh, Russia. But those are two wars, and there were seven wars of the coalitions between 1793 and um, 1815. He certainly can't be blamed for any of the ones that broke out before he became first consul. And then there were some, such as the 1805 war uh, against Russia and Austria, which were clearly Russia and Austria's fault because they invaded Bavaria, which was France's ally. I think that the Italian campaign was just an extension, essentially, of the revolutionary fighting going on there. Both the 1813 and 1814 campaigns were perfectly understandable attempts by the coalition to crush Napoleon. So I think it breaks down, out of the seven wars of the coalition, I think it breaks down two to five. And so the coalition which again, completely understandably, most of it, not Britain, but most of the other autocracies, Russia, Austria, Prussia, and so on, didn't like the idea of meritocracy. They were the exact opposite of that. And the idea that it was going to be a sort of flame that crossed Europe was understandably scary for them. And as a result, the Austrians fight against Napoleon Again and again and again, until, of course, the uh, marriage of the Emperor of Austria's daughter, Mary Louise, to Napoleon. But then soon after that, three years later, they're fighting against Napoleon again. It's bad for Napoleon that they should be called the Napoleonic Wars, really. They should be called the Wars of the Coalition, which is what we used to call them. But unfortunately, uh, editors find it much easier to go for the uh, shorter headline. Has Napoleon been more dangerous to ancien regime, autocracies, monarchies, in death than he was alive through the rest of the 19th century and early 20th. Yes. And also one has to remember, of course, that as you mentioned earlier, um, he did put his own family onto um, thrones, left, right and centre, you know, the throne of Spain, the throne of Holland, the throne of Westphalia and so on. Uh, And there are others, Naples. So one can't go too far with this argument about meritocracy. It was important for him amongst his soldiers and in some administrative jobs. But he did reintroduce the aristocracy. And of course, all these um, various 
universally useless kings who were uh, his brothers and sisters. But overall, I think, yes, he is more, has been more dangerous in, in death than in life. Because if you look at Balzac and Stondahl and so many other Bonapartist writers, you know, they do take from Napoleon this sense of um, a revolutionary ardor, stripped though of this ghastly revolutionary um, bloodthirstiness. It's interesting. So they can they can critique the present by saying, if only we had a man of that sort of revolutionary vigour who was prepared to sort of overturn things, prepared to embrace reason, to build institutions and to build sort of a better, fry, better present. Yes, Victor Hugo is a very good example of that as well, who hated and despised Napoleon III, partly because he was not Napoleon I. So when he writes the book um, explaining Waterloo in terms of the sunken road that the French cavalry was supposed to have um, destroyed themselves against and so on, what he's attempting to do really is to say there is a greatness to France and its institutions, which could be seen in Napoleon, but certainly hasn't been seen since and most definitely is not seen in this mountebank figure of uh, Napoleon III. Um, just quickly, about his own image while he was alive, we have various paintings of him crossing the Alps and other things, his hat, his great coat. Are these things that he worked on, his image, while he was alive, or, or are those rather like horns on Viking helmets? Are they the product of Hollywood props people from the 1920s? Oh, no, the iconography is absolutely central to him. He wore the um, chasseur à, à cheval colonel's uniform deliberately because he recognised quite how powerful it was to wear that. He loved the fact that nobody else wore bicorn hats in the, in the way that he did, apart from obviously in, uh, Nelson's Navy, but that was different. And he also had a real sense of giving away locks of his hair, for example, when he was uh, on his deathbed. The way during battles he would take his own uh, Legion d'honneur from his own breast and put it on the breast of the person who he seen be particularly brave in battle. These are all absolutely clear indications that he understood the power of the icon. He said that men can be governed by baubles. He certainly understood the power of baubles. And with through that memoir, and so the power of history and generations of, of us have been sort of obsessed and repelled, but drawn to him over the centuries. Hitler visited his tomb in 1940 and said, it was the greatest and finest moment of my life. <laughs> Oh God, <laughs> that's 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 all that poor old Napoleon needs to be equated with. The two men personally could not be more different. When Napoleon's army enters the Jewish uh, ghettos in European cities, he frees the Jews. He gives them the religious and social rights that they deserve. He uh, does not act like Adolf Hitler in any way. But the powerful thing about myths is that they just become propagate. We, we talk about Napoleon because we're talking about Napoleon. When we, we just say he's one of the greatest great men, what do we mean by great? It's a very positive word in today's society. You say, oh, that's great. How do you intend that word great to mean? Well, you're quite right. I mean, and there are some terrible people who are called the greats. You know, Peter the Great did some you know, monstrous things in Russia, for example. And there are lots of great greats that we have. Elizabeth I is never called Elizabeth the Great, for example. So uh, yes, it is an interesting way Frederick and Catherine both get it, but lots of other important uh, people don't. The reason I called the book The Great was first to, I suppose, irritate an entire generation of British historians who do think that he was a proto-Hitler, people who, many of them good friends of mine, 
who grew up in the Second World War and who relate their experiences back and try to impose on Napoleon this idea that he somehow was a proto-Hitler figure. And also because actually the dedication of the great uh, Vivon Denon's great uh, description of Egypt, the 20-volume description of Egypt, was dedicated to Napoleon Le Grand. So I thought that that was something that uh, was worth noting. But do we mean by greatness, we mean having had an enormous impact, or do we mean also there is an element of positivity around their legacy? Yes, I think both. And that's the difficult bit, isn't it? Um, With Alfred the Great, yes. With uh, Peter the Great, probably no. And so it's a sort of um, subriquet that one should be very sparing with. But I do believe that Napoleon uh, does deserve it. Well, thank you very much, Andrew Roberts. Thank you very much. I've much enjoyed it. I think if you're into the great man school of history, Napoleon is the ultimate great man. He rose from relative obscurity to conquer a huge empire. He humiliated enemies on the battlefield. He revolutionised France and other conquered territories. And we know absolutely loads about him. We have his letters to Josephine, to rulers, We have his private and very public correspondence. We have fiction that he wrote. We have political and military treatises that he wrote. He changed the course of history. And he also gave us a running commentary. He's just perfect for the lover of history. And for much of the following hundred years in particular, where to many history was simply the deeds of great men, well, Napoleon was the ideal subject. Thank you so much for joining me for our series about Napoleon. Be sure to like and subscribe to Dan Snow's History for more series just like this. In the coming months, we're going to have another just like this telling the astonishing story of Thomas Cochrane, the sea wolf, the most daring naval hero of the 19th century. A man whose story is absolutely more exciting and more dramatic than any fiction you'll ever read a man who went on to command the national navies of no less than three other nations. You are not going to believe your ears when you listen to it. Be sure to sign up and get that when it comes out at the beginning of the new year. Thanks to all my guests, Lord Andrew Roberts, Dr Zach White and Dr Kate List. This series was produced by Freddie Chick and Mariana Day Forge with the assistance of Charlotte Long. The editor was the long-suffering and ever-brilliant Dougal Patmore. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.